Hi, and welcome to Conversations with Scientists. I'm Vivian Marks. That was trumpet player Hugh Ash, who helped to musically present a paper in Nature Methods back in 2010. The paper and the music were from scientists at a company called Pacific Biosciences and about how they used the company sequencers to detect DNA methylation directly. That's a particular and naturally occurring chemical change of one of the bases in the DNA strand that often has big implications because it can change the function of genes. You could present a methylated genomic sequence of DNA as music. ACG are the notes ACG, and then T is played as E in the key of F major, chosen because that key has the other three pitches too. You can play all the bases in DNA as quarter notes, just not methylated C. Methylated C here is played as syncopated and rhythmically varied quarter and eighth notes. Here you go for another listen of this methylation tune. When scientists want to know about genes, chances are they use instruments called sequencers. There are quite a few companies that make sequencers. These instruments can give a readout, for example, of a stretch of DNA or many stretches of DNA, even entire genomes and many, many genomes. The challenge has been that instruments deliver short reads, short readouts of sequence. What happens then is that scientists face the challenging computational task of stitching together short reads into contiguous sequence. Genomes have a lot of gnarly bits, so assembly gets complicated and sometimes it isn't even possible. That means that you can't find out what the sequence is at these locations. To address this problem, a few companies developed instruments that can perform long read sequencing, one of which is Pacific Biosciences or PacBio for short. There are others such as Oxford Nanoport Technologies. There are newer offerings from other companies such as MGI, Ultima Genomics, Element Biosciences, and Illumina, one of the more well-known sequencer makers who is also offering long-read technology. As part of a story for one of the nature journals, Nature Methods, I spoke with researchers in academia and with scientists at companies about long-read sequencing. This is one episode of what will be several episodes on this topic to share more of what I found out as I did this story. Nature Methods calls long-read sequencing the method of the year for 2022. Pacific Biosciences, or PacBio, is one of the companies that makes sequencers that can generate long reads. In this episode, I'd like to introduce you to Dr. Jonas Korlach, the chief scientific officer of PacBio. He's originally from Germany, did his bachelor's and master's degree there, and then came to the U.S. for his Ph.D. He lives in California. The PacBio headquarters are in Menlo Park. When we chatted, he showed me a photo of him with former German Chancellor Angela Merkel at the Max Delbruck Center of Molecular Medicine on the outskirts of Berlin. Oh, yes. And I love the photo of you with Angela Merkel, right? I think that was at the Max Delbruck. So that, that's, that's, that's right. Yeah. Max Delbruck Center. They got the first system there. And uh, uh, she came by and uh, started the first run. And, uh, you know, she has a physics background. So uh, we had uh, uh, there's a there's a funny story. Um, so the instrument after you load it and we let her load everything. I mean, there, there's actually two funny stories. One was um, 
we had to describe to the security service what happens. And we said, and then Frau Merkel will open this bag. And the security service guy said, Frau Merkel doesn't open any bags. <laughs> and we said, okay, the bag will already be open. And so she loaded the thing and then you push a button and the machine takes a, a few seconds or maybe 30 seconds to make sure everything is okay before it starts running. And so we had talked for quite a bit and she was really interested and we had a good chat and she started it. And then one of the ministers tapped her on the show, Frau Merkel, we have to go. And she said, no, I want to wait for this run to start. <laughs> so fun. So, and then it, it luckily five seconds later it started and then off they went. So, but that was pretty cool. Pretty cool indeed when a politician is intrigued by a scientific instrument. Before you hear more from and with Jonas Korlach, let me just say in these podcasts, I do try, not terribly successfully, to get people's names pronounced right. Here's the way his name should be pronounced. Thank you. I appreciate that. Uh, so my name is pronounced Jonas Korlach. I wondered what Jonas Korlach thinks about having a technology he co-developed be named a method of the year. The, the dream scenario of any method developer is to have scientists use the method that you developed, right? And so, uh, uh, and we've obviously been been very uh, fortunate and, and very honored and humbled by the scientific community using PEC biolongate sequencing now and, and having published over 9,000 uh, peer-reviewed uh, publications to date. And so, um, you know, this is another form of such recognition. Um, and so it's incredibly meaningful and, and we are very uh, honored and, and proud. And uh, uh, I think it, you know, speaks to the transformation that's been happening within the biological sciences that uh, and the, the impact that uh, long-range sequencing has had to really fundamentally change some of the paradigms that we've had, seeing new biology, um, all the time and uh, looking at uh, <clears throat> genomes in a completely different way, um, whether it be uh, seeing for the first time the regions of the genome that uh, people have not been able to look at at all, or uh, maybe more seemingly mundane facts uh, like uh, the fact that the human genome is now six gigabases in size and not three gigabases because for the first time now we are able to completely separate the parental haplotypes. Of course, in every biological cell, there's two copies of your genome, one from the mother and one from the father. And they're not the same because otherwise your mother and father would have looked the same, which they didn't. <laughs> and uh, now being able to separate those two alleles and express a human genome as it exists in every one of our cells as two copies um, and uh, expressing it as six gigabases of sequence is just uh, a really um, dramatic and fundamental paradigm shift in the community. Genomes have some awfully difficult stretches to analyze with a sequencer. For example, you can't readily distinguish maternal and paternal contributions to the human genome so easily, but long reads makes that easier. That's why Jonas Korlach talks about the three billion bases of the human genome that are now 6 billion bases. And since he mentioned over 9,000 papers, no worries, we're not going to talk through all of them, but it's clear that he enjoys seeing work published that involves using PAC biosequencers. And actually, he is often part of these projects and is on papers as a co-author quite frequently. As CSO at the company, you know, part of my job or a main, one of the main 
portions of my responsibilities is to interact with the scientific community and uh, uh, discuss with um, the scientists around the world um, how they could apply the technology to the questions that they want to answer in their research. And that's incredibly rewarding, um, both in terms of uh, being at the cutting edge in these types of discussions and experimental study designs and so forth, and then to see the results of that and to see the enthusiasm of the researchers um, to uh, finally get the answer. And oftentimes, after having tried, sometimes for many years, um, <clears throat> to uh, see these regions or to answer these questions. And so we get, uh, it's, it's very rewarding to see this enthusiasm uh, to say, fine, I've tried for three years and finally, uh, I've been able to resolve this gene or assemble this genome and or see this region that I study and, and so forth. And so, um, and uh, as part of that, uh, you know, job description is to uh, uh, keep pace and, and uh, stay up to date on what the community is doing with our technology. And so it's a great pleasure to read the preprints and the latest papers. And, uh, and then I reach out to the uh, corresponding authors, congratulating them and, and asking them, you know, to, to uh, uh, I, I look for these connections. Jonas Korlach cares about the science, and I wondered how involved he gets with projects. It seems he enjoys collaboration with academics. And when the project is a new approach, there are ways to have PacBio join and help a project in various ways. So if you are a researcher with just such an idea, it can't hurt to reach out. Some aspects in genomics have become routine, both with sequencing and then assembling genomes, but there are still plenty of aspects that are not yet routine. And PacBio is keen on helping with those first-time kinds of experiments. I asked him a bit more about this and how does the company help. I had heard that it offers discounts of various types. Yeah, that is correct. And um, so, you know, and, and that I think is fairly standard um, in the industry. And, uh, you know, just just at a very high level, um, you know, that this is tied to the scale that people want to do things at. Um, obviously, if they want to do a lot of sequencing, then, then we try to incentivize that. And then uh, more, more directly connected to the previous point is if somebody wants to do something that's never been done before and we're excited about it, uh, we're happy to support that, um, um, you know, and incentivize that with maybe a discount and uh, uh, try to help make it happen, essentially. Let's say a postdoctoral fellow is trying to land a grant for a project but needs data to do that. And it's a it's a little bit of an incentive to let us know, right? Um, and so this is part of the um, maybe motivation that uh, they reach out to me and, and reach out to us as a company, and uh, then we can start working together. I wondered about the history of PacBio, about where the idea came from and how the technology development unfolded. So Jonas Korlach did a bit of time travel. As a graduate student at Cornell University in the lab of Watt Webb, he was fascinated by molecular machines. Uh, the story begins when I started uh, graduate school at uh, Cornell University, um, and that was in the fall of 1997, uh, so 25 years ago. Um, so as I mentioned, this, this fall is, is very special because it's the 25th anniversary of all these, of all these things that happened um, there <laughs> to me. <clears throat> and, um, um, and one of the first courses, uh, graduate courses, was BioBM 633 by Jeff Roberts, who's a, a, a very... Um, you know, well-known <laughs> researcher in the field of um, 
I would call fundamental biology. So he worked on uh, phages and bacteria to uh, in the 60s and 70s elucidate all these fundamental, uh, you know, dogma uh, 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 questions. And so the the course was entitled Macromolecular Machines, um, and um, and we went through. And at the this the late 1990s was a very exciting time because all these high resolution crystal structures um, became available of DNA polymerase shown here uh, and RNA polymerase and the ribosome and, and so forth. And so um, during my undergraduate work, most of the work was like bands on a gel. <laughs> and now this was replaced with these types of pictures, right? And so I, I just was fascinated by that. And it was just incredible because now all of a sudden we had uh, such a detailed picture of how these incredible uh, macromolecular machines that make DNA and make proteins and make RNA and so forth um, are uh, uh, organized. And so that was, I mean, I was just absolutely fascinated. What struck me is that there was very, very little by comparison or, or in some cases, no kinetic information, no information about how these uh, incredible machines move in time. And so I started thinking about how one might be able to uh, look at this. And so this is basically how this sort of idea um, uh, came about. Um, and DNA polymerase was particularly fascinating to me because it's just an incredible enzyme. It goes at a thousand bases per second in your body. It never makes a mistake. It copies your genome exactly one time. I mean, it's just, a you know, if you think about it, it's a it's an incredible sequencing machine. It's the most powerful sequencing machine that's ever been built. Uh, and, you know, by nature through hundreds of millions of years of evolution. And so while initially the, the, uh, <coughs> the idea was, you know, sort of academic and how can we look at these machines in, in, in time, um, it very, very clearly, uh, you know, very quickly, uh, you know, dawned on me that if you could do that, if you could watch a DNA polymerase in real time and see it incorporate the bases one after another, you would have a, a sequencing machine. And so um, then, you know, about 25 years ago, I, I jotted down in my notebook uh, the idea to watch DNA polymerase make DNA thereby sequence. His idea initially was to find a way to watch DNA polymerase incorporate DNA bases right as it was copying a DNA strand. One issue was to figure out how to get a signal from the different bases so you could collect information and not just watch or have the machine watch the sequencing. The other issue was about figuring out how to hold the DNA strand in place to get those measurements, capture the sequence to have a readout. As Jonas Korlach spoke with me, he showed me a sketch he did in his notebook at the time. There's a link in this transcript of the podcast where you can see some visuals. And then there's two aspects of this, which is how do you differentiate the four bases, right? And so, um, you know, one obvious thing would be color. Um, and then uh, the other, which is uh, jotted down here, would be different lifetimes of the fluorophores, because I thought maybe that at the time that would be easier. You have one, one color and then... Um, and uh, the lab I was in um, had a history of um, doing fluorescence lifetime measurements and so forth. And then the other thing that's uh, visible from, from this uh, initial sort of conceptual graph or sketch is that I realized that, well, if the 
if the DNA is bound to the surface in whatever observation volume and whatever volume I'm looking at, and then uh, that means that the DNA polymerase will move along the DNA strand as it makes DNA and will, will walk out of the, of the volume essentially. And so that's why uh, this alternative uh, configuration, which you know, is the one that we're using now, where you actually uh, attach the polymerase, the enzyme itself to the surface, because then it stays uh, uh, stable. The DNA moves relative to the volume. And what I'm saying here, here the polymerase has to be very processive, meaning, and that's the term for uh, <coughs> in enzymology to say that the enzyme holds on to the substrate, the DNA in this case, for a long time and makes long stretches of DNA because there are also DNA polymerase uh, like Cleno, it makes one, one incorporation and then the complex falls apart, right? And that's obviously useless in this uh, scenario. So we wanna make thousands or in, in what we have now, hundreds of thousands of bases uh, 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 made by the enzyme before this complex uh, falls apart. This was the initial concept. There were challenges, but he had ideas about what to try. He reached out to a neighboring lab where graduate student Steve Turner became intrigued by the project. So this, this is the initial concept. And so there were two main problems. Uh, one, there were no available microscopes to watch a single polymerase molecule. Um, all the available microscopes at the time, you know, would look at a volume that is much bigger than a, a single enzyme molecule. And so if you had, let's say, labeled uh, nucleotides, you would look at hundreds of thousands at a time and you would never see the one that's being processed by the polymerase. My graduate advisor's suggestion, actually, we approached a lab at Cornell that was right next to ours. Um, the lab of Harold Craighead and Steve Turner uh, was a graduate student in his lab. And of course, Steve is our CTO. I think you know Steve very well. Um, and so it's Steve uh, then invented the Zeromo waveguides, which are you know one of the, the pillars of the technology. So that's the beginning of the zero mode waveguide that Steve Turner developed. It's a way to build a tiny workspace, a nanostructure in which you can make measurements. In the case of PacBio, the measurements are from fluorescent molecules that label the bases at the single molecule level. Steve has been as instrumental and uh, as much of a heart and soul of this uh, endeavor, um, both at Cornell and then with the company. He founded the company and, and so forth. So I had no intellectual contribution uh, to the inception of the Zeromo waveguide. I mean, this is the this is the rig that I built and then, you know, tested the Zeromo waveguides. But Steve uh, had the uh, initial idea. He figured out how to make them and, and, and so forth. So um, uh, and I've, you know, we met again 25 years ago and, and he was really uh, interested in this in this problem of doing DNA sequencing with single molecule real time. And that's how we started working together. And so uh, Steve figured out how to make them. I measured the uh, volume that, that these Zuma waveguides can. And so this then led in 2003 um, to the what we call the first science paper, uh, which we're uh, pleased to get the cover. Um, 
and uh, demonstrating that uh, with zero waveguides, you can make such a small volume. And so this was the first implementation of, of the uh, original idea. As is so common in science and in tech development, there was another issue, and it related to molecular biology, how to label the nucleotides so you could identify them and where to attach them physically on the nucleotide. The second problem was a molecular biology problem. All the labeled nucleotides at the time that you could buy had the label attached to the base of the nucleotide. And so that's a problem because, um, you know, you have to have four things to make the idea work. You have to distinguish the four bases, um, let's say by color. You have to uh, <coughs> label all of them um, because, you know, you want to detect all of them. And then you have to keep the polymerase happy. Uh, and you have to keep the background low. And uh, with this type of um, uh, implementation, those two are not met because if the floor, if the label is uh, attached to the base, it stays with the um, with the with the DNA. It's it's incorporated in the growing DNA chain, and the polymerase uh, says, "Okay, this this doesn't look like DNA anymore, and I'm quitting," and and so forth. And then, of course, the other problem is that if the uh, label stays with the DNA, you have all these labels accumulate as the polymerase, even if it could uh, incorporate those. So um, another notebook sketch, uh, other possibility of the detection could be nucleotide analog with tail attached to the triphosphate moiety. So the idea uh, then that I had was to put the label on the other end of the molecule so you see previously it was attached to the base. Now it's, we are attaching it to the terminal phosphate. And so of course, what the polymerase does is when it incorporates a base into the growing DNA chain is it cleaves this bond right here. This part stays with the DNA and this pyrophosphate floats away and it's the waste product. And so now we are, uh, and as you know, this is uh, smart sequencing. Now we are detecting the base while it's being held by the polymerase the polymerase cleaves this bond, this part stays with the DNA, which is the natural nucleotide, and then the label floats away um, after incorporation. And so the polymerase has no knowledge that it was dealing with a, uh, a labeled nucleotide after the incorporation. So I let the uh, development of this with, um, uh, um, and, and showing that um, you could uh, synthesize DNA with replacing all the nucleotides with 100% dilabeled terminal phosphate linked nucleotides. So then uh, the third thing, and it's probably too much detail, we needed to um, uh, develop a surface um, to what I mentioned before, um, uh, attach the polymerase, keep it happy there and not have it uh, bind to the, to the surfaces that we don't. And so I let the development of that surface chemistry with this PNAS paper, a lot of engineering and a lot of other innovations had to happen uh, for then what we call the second science paper in January 2009, where we then finally were able to demonstrate, um, uh, you know, four color sequencing. So, uh, you know, I hope that gave you a little bit of a sense of the, the early history. And so uh, I guess the, in summary, two things, you know, so that this is the concept. And so, you know, it hadn't fleshed this picture hadn't fleshed out the specific implementation of the zero waveguides and the uh, phospholinked nucleotides and so forth.
but it certainly without doubt is the picture that sort of got it all started and it has the the, the hallmark features of um, smart sequencing in it. At PacBio, the relationship between Jonas Korlach and Steve Turner was a scientific collaboration that grew also into a scientific friendship that lasts to this day. He's a brilliant guy and, and uh, so full of creativity and ideas. And, and it was really, I think, a perfect combination because Steve's background is in physics um, and he's an expert in nanofabrication. And all that, of course, was um, necessary and, and uh, uh, was the, the underlying reason for why he was able to um, invent and develop the Zermo waveguides. And my background is in molecular biology and biochemistry. And so I think what we found stimulating is to feed off each other, complementing uh, this, what is ultimately a biophysics problem uh, with our uh, two very complementary uh, backgrounds. Since we were talking about friendships, I thought I would ask Jonas Korlach about his mentors, about how he sees his role in science these days, since he is involved in so many different realms of science. Yeah, a, a biologist and a method developer, I would say. Um, my my two earliest mentors, um, the first one was my mom's boss, um, and who was a chemist, um, and uh, then my undergraduate advisor, both independently told me during my formative years that they felt that every major uh, progress in science is mediated by a new method. And, uh, and that struck me. And my undergraduate advisor was actually a method developer. He was a biophysicist. Um, and, um, and so I, uh, I was really um, fascinated by his lectures and then did my thesis with him, uh, the diploma uh, in Germany and uh, tried to develop a method which didn't, didn't work, uh, didn't happen, was a completely different area. But I, I, I found the, the field, the, the activity fascinating. And so, um, and uh, uh, with regard to what you mentioned, uh, dabbling in you know, a number of different things, if you want to do, um, and, and I should mention that um, I was very grateful for Cornell University allowing, so I was in the biochemistry department at Cornell as a grad student, but I was able to do my PhD work in the applied physics department. And my PhD advisor was Watt Webb, who was, uh, you know, uh, uh, as you know, a world famous physicist. And so that um, nurturing of interdisciplinary, I mean, like real interdisciplinary, I spend 90% of my time at Cornell, or probably 95% of my time in the applied physics department, as a biochemistry grad student, right. And so that is uh, really uh, interdisciplinary research in practice um, rather than uh, lip service. And so um, that way, I think I was exposed to all sorts of different things that I would never have seen in, in a classical sort of system where you stay, stay in your lane, as, as it were. And then the other um, aspect to this is that when you are with a startup company, you know, there are like 12 people and there's like, okay, we need to fix this. You know, we have 12 warm bodies. And so I said, you know, I'm going to try the best I can to be a surface chemist for a year and a half or something like that. And um, it's, um, you know, as long as you know your limitations and uh, know how to reach out and get help from uh, whoever you can and then try to do the best you can, um, I think that's that's really rewarding too. Building on PacBio's smart sequencing is an approach called HiFi sequencing, which stands for high fidelity. 
the instrument makes multiple passes around a circular molecule, essentially correcting errors it made on the previous pass. Hi-Fi sequencing made the PacBio instrument much more accurate than it was previously. What is also true, however, is that hi-fi sequencing is much more expensive than other methods. But the good news is it's going to get faster and cheaper, he says. If you look at um, protein structures and crystallography, right? So when Max Perrotz, um, you know, and, and uh, Watson and Crick were doing their work, uh, it was super cumbersome and it took several years to get the first structure of a protein and now it's a you know it's a it's a production type uh, activity and and you know protein structures come out in in minutes you know when new methods are being developed then initially it's it's a, a bit cumbersome and more expensive and and so forth and then you know but whatever you look at NMR or mass spec or um, you know it there is over time. As um, the scientific community realizes, you know, that there is a lot of value there and you can see things that you've never been able to see before, uh, then uh, through largely engineering, um, they, uh, it gets faster and uh, higher throughput and, and, and so forth. And so in that um, way, it becomes more scalable, easier to use. I mean, just as one example for, uh, you know, PEC bio long read sequencing. The genome assemblies, um, typically about even four, three or four years ago, took several days. And now with the advent of hi-fi sequencing, they take half an hour or an hour. And so, and um, these types of improvements are being made all the time. We have a partnership with Google and they've uh, sped up um, and made uh, the hi-fi data both more accurate and um, increase the yield and, and increasing the, the computational speed and so forth. So, and um, on the computation side, um, of course, we're piggybacking on the uh, uh, telecom industry. Computers are getting faster all the time, GPUs and, and so forth, right? So um, I think it's inevitable that uh, long read sequencing is going to get faster and cheaper and easier to use. We are seeing uh, increased adoption in the clinic. Just this morning, um, I saw uh, a new paper um, about nationwide children's now has um, implemented um, PEC bio uh, full length RNA sequencing in the clinic, right? So, um, and we can send you. Um, this uh, it's a nice um, article in this RNA Seq magazine. So fusion and long isoform pipeline for cancer transcriptome-based resolution. And so here's the patient care. They call this PB flip um, sample preparation. They do isoseq. They have the full um, you know. And so um, you know you get patients who consent, and now they can have um, PEC bio isoseq done in the context of their cancer to uh, detect these fusions. Right? It's um, you know. And so this happened this morning, right? And so um, this is the type of, uh, and coming back to what you mentioned, you know, th this is the type of thing that uh, gets me out of bed in the morning. I mean, it's just incredible to see uh, these advances. And so we're seeing more and more of those. Um, and just, I think you can take, look at the his historical evolution of how initially Sanger sequencing, and then of course, Illumina sequencing has evolved in developing these applications in the research domain and then moving into the clinic. And, and I have no doubt that we're going to see uh, exactly the same thing with, with PEC bio long read sequencing. For PhD students and postdoctoral fellows and others embarking on a career in science and looking around, 
Jonas Korlach has some advice. I think there are three areas. Um, if you feel like you are a method or application developer um, type person, um, which I commend you because it takes a lot of perseverance to develop methods. 99% of the time things will work. So you have to take um, a, a lot of um, energy from the 1% of the time when something does succeed. Um, then uh, I think, you know, work on uh, either, uh, you know, method improvements or new applications for the method. You know, Vijay Ramani at UCSF is a perfect example, or Jason Dury has done this, of course, for many, many years, uh, where they uh, just create brilliant new methods and applications and use cases of the technology. And we've seen many examples of this um, for PecBio. Um, the second type is if, if you want to work um, in industry at the, at the company, uh, either, uh, you know, so we have a, a very similar sort of um, research focused branch where we do largely academic work, trying to, uh, uh, you know, test new things and, and so forth. Um, but in the context of the more structured and of course, um, you know, more goal oriented um, and product oriented uh, system of the company. And then, uh, you know, you have the associated engineering and, and, and so forth. And then the third one, like you said, is just to be a, a practitioner of the, of the method for the different applications. And if you're in the biodiversity or conservation genomic space, and like you said, go out into the field and want to understand ecology and so forth, apply the method um, to, um, to that. Um, and the great thing with a new method is you're always going to find something new. I don't know, I haven't met a single researcher who has applied PecBioIsoSeq and has told me I didn't find anything that I didn't know before. They all find new things because you're looking at things with a new magnifying glass, right? You're looking at it with an, a different uh, a mousetrap and um, um, a better mousetrap to see isoforms, for example, right? And so. Um, or like you mentioned, in the clinic, applying it to, uh, as you saw by the latest example, patients with rare disease or cancer patients. And, uh, and that's, of course, uh, tremendously rewarding because uh, to, you mentioned the example of rare disease, some of those families have had diagnostic odysseys for, you know, uh, over a decade in some cases. And um, I think we don't appreciate the emotional journey of those families, because it's not that nothing is happening during those uh, 10 years. It's, oh, we have another method and let's do another test and let's do this. And there's always a little bit of hope that finally you're going to be able to find the answer to the underlying reason. And even if it's in, in many cases, it doesn't mean that we now have a way to treat or to cure even, but just having the knowledge and to end the, the question mark and the, uh, the um, uncertainty of what is um, happening. And in some case, real world consequences like uh, risk of if I want to have another child, what is the risk that the child's going to have the same disease and so forth. So the impact that we have seen, and I, uh, you know, I only interact with the researchers, but they're telling me, they're giving me their uh, encounters with the families of now finally being able to see and conclusively close the book on what has caused this particular rare disease, 
it's, I mean, I'm getting goosebumps right now, um, just talking about it. It's just um, absolutely incredible. Knowing what is likely amiss with a loved one is terrifically powerful. That information is likely not yet a cure or a treatment per se, but it can help to move forward toward a treatment. And it helps to avoid treatments that won't work and also avoid having people go from one physician to another and tests and more tests without getting good answers. As Jonas Korlach looks ahead, he sees a lot of new uses for long-read sequencing and a need for new approaches that take spatial context into account. The knowledge to be gleaned from single cells is one aspect, but readouts from cells in their native spatial habitat, so to speak, is another important aspect. This is something that is happening now. Over the last two years, we've certainly seen really great adoption of single cell um, full length RNA sequencing. And so there is a, a product that we're going to launch this quarter um, to facilitate that and, and so forth. Um, and I've had multiple interactions with researchers who now want to take this. It's the logical next level. We're looking at single cells. We can resolve the transcriptomes with unprecedented isoform resolution in single cells, but we've lost their uh, spatial uh, organization and context. And so now, um, so I know of several groups that are are actively um, uh, applying PECBIO to spatial uh, transcriptomics right now. At one point in the not so distant past, long reads from long read sequencing were quite error prone. I think what fundamentally what happened uh, in 2019 is that in 2019, we had two different worlds in sequencing, right? We had one world, which was accurate sequencing with short reads, and then we had long reads, but they had lots of errors in them. And so the hi-fi sequencing takes the best of those two worlds and puts them together and now uh, generates highly accurate long reads. And so what the, you know they say the rest is history. What we've seen um, are those fundamental paradigm changes that, that I mentioned, uh, some of them I, which I mentioned. And so um, I think the and and the, the power of that is that you are sequencing uh, directly a single molecule um, and you do it multiple times to um, wash out any sort of random errors that you would make um, to arrive at the most accurate reflection of the sequence of that molecule together with its epigenetic markers, together with the 5-methylcytosine that may also be on there. When PacBio introduced hi-fi sequencing and scientists began using hi-fi reads and other technology, they have been able to close gaps in the human genome sequence. For example, there is the telomere to telomere consortium that is about sequencing chromosomes end to end from telomere to telomere. There's also the human pangenome reference consortium, which is using long read sequencing too. Also, the human genome is no longer 3 billion base pairs that have some sort of computationally mashed up by combining maternal and paternal genotypes. The human genome was completed for the first time. You know, you've seen this and and the basis for this assembly, and this has been, you know, obviously was um, uh, publicized heavily, um, This that this was built directly from the hi-fi reads. Uh, now, we talked about this already. The human genome is now 6 billion bases in size, no longer 3 billion bases. And uh, I wanted to mainly with this slide from the Human Pangenome Reference Consortium and these terrific new preprints from about two or three months ago, 
uh, attribute sort of the, the, the notion because in one of these papers, they have this terrific sentence, we no longer consider collapsed three gigabase genome assemblies as state of the art, but instead consider two genomes for every diploid genome assembled, that is six gigabases versus three gigabases where parental haplotypes are phased and fully resolved. So I think that is a, a very powerful sentence. And now one idea is that a pan genome could begin to be the new reference genome. It will involve telomere to telomeric sequencing and capture more of the human genomic diversity. So this paradigm shift that a pan genome reference is the new reference concept, I mean, this is tremendous. And, you know, as much um, justified media attention that the uh, telomere to telomere consortium has gotten for their paper, this I think is probably as relevant or impactful as fundamental, but probably more because it deals with diploid genomes. And for the first time, it represents the human species with regard to genome in the population context, right? So, I mean, I think this is actually more, you know, important or uh, transformative, should I say, to the community. And so these are built from uh, PecBio HiFi assemblies of 47 genetically diverse individuals. And as we just talked about, you have two copies. So these are 94 haplotypes that are contributing to this new pan genome reference, adding about, you know, 120 million bases of new sequence, uh, over 1,500 gene duplications relative to the linears. And then it immediately shows the dramatic benefits that you get from uh, moving from the single linear reference concept to a population encompassing pan genome reference concept. 34% fewer errors in uh, variant calling, twice the number of structure variants per haplotype compared to before. Uh, re resolving complex regions. Uh, actually, the largest absolute increase in accuracy was in these challenging medically relevant genes. A, a better representation of tandem repeats, RNA-seq mapping, chip-seq mapping, and so forth. So, I mean, this is a very powerful paper. PacBio is a member of the Human Pan Genome Reference Consortium, and the paper Jonas Korlach is talking about is one he was directly involved with. This is the one that that I was on uh, and directly uh, involved uh, where they do um, a very detailed comparison of the different sequencing methods, sequencing technologies and assemblers to de develop the most accurate, complete and cost-effective diploid. And uh, they find that HiFi sequencing gave the best results, approach, quoting approaches that used highly accurate long reads outperformed those that did not. And so the assemblies, you know, uh, you know I, I won't read all of this, but they have the best performance and again, best variant calls in these. Um, and, and the authors directly attribute this to the high degree of accuracy. QV50, that's less than an error on 100,000 bases, with long reads has only been a recent advance due to the high base calling accuracy of high fi reads. So, so this is the one because it was you know, technology um, uh, related that I was directly involved in. And then the other, so we, I, I attend all the calls. There are weekly calls by the HPRC. And then we uh, certainly support these efforts, but these are then to apply the, um, these methods um, to generating the pan-genome reference, look at segmental duplications and so forth. So that's then the, the secondary work that we are uh, less directly involved in. What do you find exciting about the human pan-genome reference consortium work is its scale and scope? It makes him happy that more accurate long read sequencing is leading to new insights about the genome. 
For example, it enables looking at aspects of the genome, such as segmental duplications. These are a kind of structural gnarly bit in genomes. Segmental duplications, it's a form of structure variant. And this paper um, describes how segmental duplications have not been systematically addressed because of the difficulties in mapping short-read sequence to these uh, virtual. So segmental duplications are, you have sequence, large sequences duplicated, they're very similar to each other. And so with short reads, you don't know uh, which one they, the, the read came from. And as a quote, as a result became blacklisted from subsequent genomic analysis. So we just did not look at them because we couldn't. And so in this paper, uh, they used PEGBIO HiFi data to extend the variant calling into 5% of the human genome, 120 million bases of additional segmental duplication sequence. What do they find? Almost 2 million uh, SNB SNPs in the gene-rich portion of the genome previously considered largely inaccessible. And they find that variation, genetic variation is actually higher, 60% higher in these regions compared to the unique regions that we've been looking at all along. So we haven't been able to see it. And now that we can, we find, wow, there's actually more genetic variation there than uh, uh, in, the, in the regions that we have been looking at. One example where that's relevant, immediately clinically relevant, is uh, the immune, immunoglobulin regions. So this is an extremely complex region. These are the segmental duplications here. Um, and you have other repeat elements, and it's been typically ignored in genome-wide studies, um, believe it or not. I mean, it's just incredible, right? So we know these are antibodies, they matter critically in disease, and we have not looked at the genetics of this at all. And so this paper about three months ago now um, used PEC biohypha sequencing for the first time to develop a comprehensive catalog of the genetic variation in this locus. And they find that, well, your genetics actually makes a significant contribution to the antibody gene usage. It's pretty, it's pretty incredible. So in the, in the field, because this was a black box and we couldn't see it, the field largely assumed that it's all the, the immune response for IGH is large, largely random with this, you know, VDJ recombination of the different parts of the antibody and so forth. And uh, now that we can see um, this region for the first time, lo and behold, we find that your genetics actually makes a pretty important uh, uh, a contributor to how you're going to, to respond to certain diseases. And so obviously uh, very, uh, clear implications for antibody response in cancer, immunotherapy, infectious disease. Um, you know, um, there's something to be said about um, why some people get very sick with COVID and others don't and, and so forth. To Jonas Korlach, the advances such as those from the Telomere to Telomere Consortium, the T2T Consortium, and the Human Pangenome Reference Consortium, the HPRC, are enabling a new approach and scale for sequencing and assembly. I think what we're going to be seeing is that telomere to telomere is going to be the new gold standard that everything's going to be measured at. No plant and animal genomes. We haven't talked very much about plant animals, but uh, a lot is being sequenced with. Um, uh, and, and I think for the plant animal field, they had basically largely given up on genome assemblies because as you know, plant and animal genomes can be very complex and you just can't do it with short reads at all. And so I just put one example, a recent example by the USDA 
they sequenced uh, locusts, six different species of locusts. Um, and, you know, they're three times bigger um, than uh, the human genome. And so I like this quote, um, you know, it's, it's an 18 wheeler next to a compact car for a fruit fly. Um, and so we've seen that uh, transformation and we've been a, a proud partner and, and collaborator in all these uh, biodiversity and conservation genomics projects that um, uh, uh, you know about. If you heard the beginning of this podcast, I had a comment from Jonas Korlach about a photo of him and former German Chancellor Angela Merkel at the Max Delbruck Center of Molecular Medicine. Let me just share it again here because you might hear it differently now that you've heard a bit more about other aspects from him. Oh, yes. And I love the photo of you with Angela Merkel, right? I think mm -hmm. that was at the Mark Stelberg. So that, that's, that's, that's right. Yeah. Mark Stelberg Center. They got the first system there and uh, uh, she came by and uh, started the first run. And, uh, you know, she has a physics background. So uh, we had uh, uh, there's a there's a funny story. Um, so the instrument after you load it and we let her load everything. I mean, there, there's actually two funny stories. One was um, we had to describe to the security service what happens. And we said, when then Frau Merkel will open this bag and the security service guy said, Frau Merkel doesn't open any bags. <laughs> and we said, okay, the bag will already be open. And so she loaded the thing and then you push a button and the machine takes a, a few seconds or maybe 30 seconds to make sure everything is okay before it starts running. And so we had talked for quite a bit and she was really interested and we had a good chat and she started it. And then one of the ministers tapped her on the shoulder, Frau Merkel, we have to go. And she said, no, I want to wait for this run to start. <laughs> so fun. So, and then it, it luckily five seconds later it started and then off they went. So, but that was pretty cool. Jonas Korlach has seen plenty of developments in the sequencing area and has been part of the development of long-read sequencing. I wondered what he might say to a pioneer like Frederick Sanger if he had had a chance to meet him. Sanger developed the first way to sequence DNA, and that became known as Sanger sequencing. He passed away in 2013. Fred Sanger is obviously one of my you know, all-time heroes, and, and uh, obviously I never met him, but uh, I had the uh, privilege to meet some people who had, uh, um, you know, so who were sort of this bridge and uh, uh, told me, um, you know, their impressions and, and their um, experiences interacting with him. And, and uh, I, I would have obviously loved to uh, meet. So I think he would be delighted um, to see how sequencing has evolved um, and how it is now done globally on this massive scale and uh, 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 in, you know, seeing how uh, biology and medicine uh, is changing. Um, I think we would uh, probably muse about all the things we don't yet know, um, even though people had previously uh, you know, proclaimed that the human genome is finished. And I've been very pleased to see that uh, it got the uh, uh, measured and, and um, thoughtful attention um, and media coverage that it uh, was, was appropriate to um, put the most recent work of now finally completing the human genome in the right light and not, not as a way to denigrate or, or to somehow uh, uh, shed the human genome project in a negative light because that would be inappropriate. And, and the human genome project was absolutely transformational to the whole field. But uh, I think it was a great example of, of the 
the progress in science that uh, I would love to talk to Fred Sanger about um, and uh, that uh, you learn with every new advance. You learn things, but you also learn about all the things you don't yet understand. And those are great opportunities then to uh, uh, to go forth. And um, and uh, I like gardening and I understand he, he really liked uh, his roses. So I think we'd talk about that a little bit too. <laughs> That was Conversations with Scientists. Today's guest was Dr. Jonas Korlach, Chief Scientific Officer of Pacific Biosciences. And the music used for this media project is Winnie the Mook, Funky Energetic Intro, and Acid Trumpet by Kevin McLeod, downloaded from Filmmusic.io and licensed from Filmmusic.io. And here's a thank you and a shout out to Lizelda Lopez, who helped make this podcast happen. And I just wanted to say, because there's confusion about these things sometimes, PacBio didn't pay for this podcast and nobody paid to be in this podcast. This is independent journalism that I produce in my living room. I'm Vivian Marks. Thanks for listening.